All right. Well, again, um, if you're new here to Esther, um, we are wrapping up tonight. We should finish Esther. If you are not familiar with what we have talked about before, you can uh, go to Patreon or uh, find it maybe on YouTube or something like that, our podcasts, and you can listen to the rest. Um, some of this may not make complete sense without having been here throughout the other nine sessions or whatever it was, but um, uh, we've been seeing that it is a pattern, a prophetic book, a very prophetic book, and uh, very historical as well, obviously. But anyway, we're going to pick up here where we left off in chapter 9, verse 12. And it says this, And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the ten sons of Haman. What What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow, according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So what we're seeing here, last week we kind of closed out reminding you that when it keeps saying in the citadel of Susa, in the citadel of Susa, that that word is literally like the palace. It's the same word for palace. And that's going to be important later, but I just want to point it out because we're seeing it here again, that um, there in the very first verse, that the men in Shushan, the citadel. It's telling us something there, and that will mean more as we go, but I'm not going to talk about it on this slide. But it's kind of a strange request. We're going to kind of start this evening kind of taking a little bit of a rabbit trail that may or may not be right prophetically, but I find it interesting that there's a request for them to be able to do this again tomorrow and that the enemies, in the original it seems to be suggesting that even the hanging of of Haman's ten sons is not going to take place now. It's going to take place tomorrow. They've already been killed, but we're going to hang them up tomorrow. Now, we already talked about, you know, Mordecai. They wanted to hang him because it is kind of like, hey, this is the enemy. It's a parading of victory, in a sense. And that is what Haman wanted to do to Mordecai, but it was coming back on his own head. Well, that word tomorrow, mahar, it can also mean kind of like a future. Now, I believe, yes, it's talking about tomorrow, 24 hours later or 12 hours or whatever it was, but the day tomorrow. But there may be a prophetic significance here as well in the sense that he's asking that in the future, let these 10 sons be hung. Now, again, I don't want to make a doctrine out of this. This is just kind of an interesting parallel historically, but... I will say this, that Jews see history as cyclical. They see prophecy as cyclical. We've talked about that before. We see, okay, God makes a prediction. It happens. It's done. Great. God fulfilled it. That's not how it really works. God makes a prediction, and there are many times these fulfillments in part of them until the final fulfillment takes place. We know there will be a real antichrist 
But yet John said there are many antichrists. I believe Pharaoh was a type of antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of antichrist. Um, some say Herod, one of the Herods was a type of antichrist or Titus. And so uh, as a result, there are many leading up to the original. Possibly, that's all I'm saying, possibly that this could be happening here as well. Because if you recall in the book of Revelation, you're going to see that there is a dragon with ten heads. Okay? Well, prior to even getting to that, there's some interesting things here, just going back a few years to the Nuremberg trials of 1945. It's kind of interesting, and, and again, I'm not making a doctrine out of this, okay? It's just an interesting parallel. Um, there were a whole number of nations that came against to testify against uh, Nazis who had killed millions of Jews in the Holocaust. And just like today, we have people saying, well, it didn't really happen. Well, there was so much evidence you can't deny it, even today, even though we have Holocaust deniers today that are saying that never really happened. You guys, you have to check your brain out. If you are a Holocaust denier, there's something wrong with your thinking. You're not thinking logically. You are not thinking uh, scientifically. There's history. There are eyewitness accounts there is, there are museums, there are pictures, there is everything. So we cannot deny that this indeed happened. But what's going to be interesting is that on October 1st of 1946, 17 men went on trial for their uh, murderous acts. And what ends up happening is three of them are going to end up being acquitted. Two of them will not be charged and the remaining 12 um, basically had the death penalty, but only 10 of them are going to be killed. And one of them is going to commit suicide. One dies before the judgment takes place, leaving the 10 that were to be hung. And we see 10 men here that are followers of Haman, the devil, a picture of the devil, are the ones that are going to be hung publicly. So, is this possibly a picture of that tomorrow in the future? That in the future, let the ten men who go against the Jews or anybody be, you know, attacked. I guess it, it might be a stretch. I'm, I'm willing to admit that here, but it's just interesting. I'm, I'm saying that so that I don't have people coming back and saying, I, I think that's, I, I realize that, okay? But there's a reason to bring this up because one of the guys here was Julius Stryker. He was the publisher of Der Sturmer and basically that was a propaganda magazine that was against the Jews. And it was used to get people to go against them just like we see a lot of propaganda going on today um, you know, against Christianity. And kind of like what I said before when we were worshiping. If you go against God's children, woe to you. 
And so regardless of whether or not this fits Esther, I can tell you this, woe to that man. Because he was, the, all of these guys were going after God's people. And there is no indication that they had the blood of Jesus to cover their sins, which means they will pay for those sins themselves. Well, this guy was the last one to be hung. And you can see it here that when he was brought out to be hung, in all hatred and uh, just detestment, he looked down and he said, Purim Fest 1946. So he himself took the events of what was happening to him and attached them to the book of Esther by calling it Purim Fest because Purim is the very festival that we're reading about here in the book of Esther. It was a time of deliverance for the Jews where God stepped in to save his people. And that's what's going on here. God stepped in and they did get punishment for it. The enemy of the Jew is hung on the gallows. To further the, the connection possibly is where these trials took place. They took place here in this building right here. And today it is still called the Palace of Justice. And it's interesting that what Esther said is that these were in the citadel or the palace of Shushan. And here we see that it is in the palace of justice that justice takes place against the Jews in the 1940s. So, who knows? Just an interesting parallel and nothing more than that at this point. Okay, But, back to Esther, verse 14. So, the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men of Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. So they had rest from their enemies. Now, for those of you who have not been here for the whole time, I am going to make, I think, a pretty solid doctrinal statement that Esther is prophetic and that Mordecai is a picture of Jesus, Haman is a picture of the devil, King Ahasuerus is a picture of God the Father, Esther is a picture of the church, Vashti is a picture of the uh, disobedient, and we couldn't go two verses without seeing scripture popping off of pages and other places talking about these very same things. And so go back and listen to that if you, you haven't heard it. So we're going to continue here and we see that once this happens, once Mordecai, a picture of Christ, is enthroned again, that the result is rest from their enemies. And the enemies are put down right and left in great numbers. So they do not touch the plunder. We talked about that before, that 
Haman was an Agagite, which goes back to the Amalekites. And when God had told Saul to go kill the Amalekites, he says, don't touch the plunder. Wipe them out. So that possibly they weren't touching the plunder because they're realizing, A, this is God's battle, just like it was supposed to be back in the days of Saul. And we will not touch the plunder of the Amalekites, the Agagites. Okay? And so that might be there as well. Prophetically, let me tell you this, when the Lord comes back, you're not going to care about the plunder. It's all going to burn. You're not going to care about your home. You're not going to care about any of these things. All you're going to care about is Yeshua. That's it. He is the prize, not the gold streets of heaven. I don't know if I've said this here or not before, but I think maybe... I, I'll, I'll say it again because it's coming to my mind. But that idea of if God came, well, if you were to die tonight and I said that you can go to heaven or hell, your choice, but let me explain what you're getting. Heaven is a place where you are going to have to work 12 hours a day, six days a week, and it's hot like it was here this week. Okay, you are going to have water that is rationed, food that is rationed. You're going to have to come home to an overcrowded apartment with six other people that you're going to share it with. You are not going to have feasts because the food is rationed. So the food will be okay, but it will get you by. You're going to survive. You don't get to go on vacations. You don't get to plan all of these things that we love to do in this uh, country of freedom. But when you come home, one of those six people that you share this over, over a crowded apartment with is Jesus. And then, on your day off, you get to spend all day with Jesus. Every week, for an eternity. And you get to work side by side with him during your 12-hour day, too. Now, on the flip side, hell, oh man, best food, best climate. You get to vacation if you'd like. You get to do whatever you want, but Jesus is not there because, well, he's in heaven. Where do you want to go when you die? Now, be honest. Where do you want to go when you die? When that question was posed to me by a guy named Bill Gillum in a book, What God Wishes Christians Knew About Christianity, one of my favorite books I've ever read, I couldn't even really be honest with myself. Deep down, I knew what my answer was, but I couldn't say it out loud. It was like, <sighs> I knew I wanted to say heaven. Deep down, I wanted to say it, but I knew my flesh was screaming for hell. And it forced me to realize something about myself that I didn't like. I was more in love with heaven than I was with Jesus. And I'm telling you, I think that's the American church today. We are more in love with heaven than we are Jesus. Daniel Joseph had a wonderful message here again this, this morning. And he was talking about how the Israelites would complain every time they went. And one of the reasons is their expectations were not met. They had expectations of what they were going to 
See, God was going to take him into the land of milk and honey, and instead they meet these giants. They meet all of these troubles and trials, and so they complain and grumble because their expectations weren't met when they wanted them to be met. They wanted it now. And as a result, they compromise, and they want to go back to Egypt. They'd rather choose hell than heaven to be with their Lord. Time and time we see that going on in the Bible. And that's what Enoch talks about, or what is Enoch is being in Jude. He's going through Jude. Jude talks about Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. What men? These grumblers, it goes on to say. These people who did not have their expectations met because they were more in love with the things of this world and the things of this flesh than they were in love with their Savior, the one who delivered them. That is what we have. We're not going to care about the plunder. You're not going to care about your home when the Lord comes back, when things get rough. At least I hope not. You know, it's kind of interesting, maybe go back four months and a lot of people were wondering what's going on in this world. Is the Lord coming back soon? He is. I don't know what soon means, but He is. It's what Revelation tells me. But I was talking to a couple of different people who sought me out to ask me what they should do, what they should do. And you know what struck me was this. You know what they were most concerned about? Their possessions. Where should I put my money? What, what, what should I buy? What should I not buy? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be wise with what we do, but let me tell you something. The money and what happens to that should be the least of our concerns. You're not going to care about the plunder. You're going to get rest. I'd give it all up for rest. You can have it all. I tell my family all the time, when I die, you can celebrate. Okay, There is no need to mourn because I am going to be where I have longed to be ever since I can remember. Well, let me take you to some other New Testament verses that talk about this very thing. That when our Lord is going to be enthroned at His return... What happens? Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. You see, God is a righteous judge here, by the way, first of all. When he comes to do, I was thinking of Logan's message last week, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation. All these people who are saying God's wrath is this evil thing, and you know He's a loving God, and He wouldn't do that, and it's just really unjust for Him to, to, to bring eternal punishment on people. No, it is righteous for Him to do that. God's wrath is righteous. That is not a hate-filled God. That is a righteous and just God. I won't go into that because Logan did a good job of talking about it last week. But 
The exact same thing that's happening here in the book of Esther is what's going to happen to you guys. When the Lord comes back and he is revealed, Mordecai is being revealed now. He is being made second in power and in some sense is even equal with the king. And when he is revealed, the people get rest. Let me tell you, when Yeshua is revealed, you will receive rest. Verse 17 continues in Esther. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. I'm going to deal with this idea of presents here in a moment, but before I want to touch on this unwalled towns. That struck me because you don't really see that much in Scripture. I looked for that term and I only found it in one other place. Ezekiel 38 verse 8. This is where Gog and Magog, the end time kind of thing, Gog is coming up against God's people. And it says, they were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. This is talking of Israel. They are the ones that are dwelling safely. You will ascend, coming like a storm, covering the land like a cloud, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day it shall come to pass that thoughts will arise in your mind in the, the Gog, and you will make an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against a land of unwalled villages. I will go to a peaceful people who dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take plunder and to take booty. So, I don't know if this is a good connection or not, but I found it interesting that here we see Gog coming up against Israel, an unwalled, what seems to be an unprotected people, but we see that God comes and fights for them. This is exactly what's going on in the book of Esther. That now the Jews, after being delivered, have been brought to an unwalled city. Unwalled villages. There's people living all over. I've said this before that the best that I can make sense of the book of Revelation based on what other scriptures say is that in the end times God's people will be taken to Israel where all the nations gather up against them. Let me tell you, when that happens, you know what? You're going to be in an unwalled city. And God is going to be your protection. And that seems to be somewhat of the context here in Isaiah. And so... I don't know why, but this just kind of, like I said, that they were dwelling in unwalled cities stuck out in my mind here. So, as it goes on, and it says that they were uh, feasting, gladness. That was mentioned three times in those verses that we just read. But then it says, as a holiday for the sending of presents to one another. This word for presents is shalach manot, which is associated with food. And so we're not just talking about any gift, but this is a feasting presence. And so to this day, a lot of times that's what the Jews do, is they'll go and give food to the poor and whatnot. Baskets of food, 
to their neighbors. And the reason being is because this isn't just any present. This is a feasting that is taking place. Well, what happens when the Lord comes back? When our king is revealed, when he is going to take his throne, and when we are in unwalled cities, a great feast. Then he said to me, right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. I believe that this celebration of Purim is a prophetic picture of the Lord's return and the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is a food feast. A day of deliverance, I know, yeah. So all those people who tell me, you know, I just, this idea of heaven and, you know, worshiping God all day, it kind of sounds like a bummer. You know, I kind of want like some buffets and whatnot. Golden Corral, Golden Corral baby. It's in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, not literally, but you know what I mean. It is a feast. But let me tell you, that's still not going to be the prize. Jesus is still the prize. And you will never be tired of worshiping him. Verse 20, Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So again, Mordecai, a picture of Jesus, he's going to write these down. His words are going out to where? The world. Just like his words have gone out to us today, to the world. And it goes on to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. No more sorrow, no more tears. That's exactly what scripture says. I'm going to show you some of those coming up. When I was reading this today, what jumped out at me was Isaiah and Jesus, what he says when he went into the temple, and he goes up and he grabs the, the scroll, he unrolls it, and he reads from the prophet Isaiah talking about the year of Jubilee, the year of freedom being pronounced. He says this in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. These are all things that in, in some sense is happening here in the book of Esther. Okay, we see that they give food to the poor for Purim. There is freedom from your captives. There is, in sense, the good news, the gospel that is going out here. And the brokenhearted are being healed. Now, a couple of things. When Jesus is saying that, they knew he was kind of basically claiming to be the Messiah. And it's not an accident that he closes the scroll and goes and sits down without finishing that verse out which talks about the year of judgment, because that hadn't come. His first coming, the first time he was going to come, was to pronounce the year of freedom, which is the year of Jubilee, 
which I was talking with some people here recently, I kind of think, you know, we hear about, oh, you know, this is the year of the Jubilee. I know that Jonathan Kahn had talked about that here maybe three years ago, four years ago, I don't know when. Um, we hear that every night, that this is a year of Jubilee, you know, canceling debts and all of that. I haven't seen anything that can tell me when that year of Jubilee truly is. The closest thing I can come is in Scripture when Jesus is saying, I'm pronouncing it. Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Don't know. But I have to wonder if that wasn't the Jubilee right there when he came. So the Jubilee is like a one-time deal? Every 50 years. Every 50 years. Yeah, we, it, it's been lost. Yet, in Israel, they still practice that with their, their land buying and whatnot. Every 50 years? Yeah. I think there is. God never said he got rid of it. I think he's coming back on a jubilee year. Because... Just like he closed the book and he did not pronounce the judgment because his first coming wouldn't do that, the next time he comes, I have a feeling it's going to be then. There's no way for us to tell what year that was. We don't know. So I'm not giving you setting a date here. But nonetheless, next time he comes, there's going to be freedom, but there's also going to be judgment when he comes the next time. That's just my personal feeling that could be. The problem is the calendars are so screwed up, I don't think they really know. And I'm guessing that Jonathan Kahn is going off of some rabbinical sources or whatever when they're getting there, but I don't know. Uh, I, I've just heard a number of different ones, and they all can't be right. The only thing that I can see is something in Scripture that may indicate it when our Lord himself is proclaiming that. We will. We will definitely know. So, anyway, um, like I said, Mordecai is bringing no tears, no sorrow. Look at some of these verses. Jesus, when he comes, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Former things, interesting, like the former decree. The former decree will be passed away. The decree of death. Just like in Esther, there was another decree that brought freedom. Revelation 22, verse 12, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So, in part, for now, this two-day thing, one of the things that I had thought about Again, don't make a doctrine out of this. This is just my thoughts. Why two days of judgment on the enemies? How many Armageddon battles are there? Two. Many in the church don't realize that. They think, oh, there's an Armageddon battle. There is one before the millennial, Revelation 20, 
and there is one after Revelation 20. There are two. I don't know if that has anything to do with this or not, but nonetheless, what is that? That is judgment on the enemies that want to kill us, that march up against us. Verse 23, so the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun as Mordecai had written to them. Because Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. I think it was, you know, the week before last when I talked, we talked about things returning on their own head. Basically, the Christian karma. Okay, and I said we don't believe in karma. That's New, Test, that's, or New Age stuff. But there is an aspect of truth to that that we see biblically when we look at an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Those that, uh, you know, um, were killed by the sword must be killed by the sword. All kinds of scriptural examples of that, that you reap what you sow. And that's what's going on here. But we see that Mordecai has made sure that the memory of Haman, a picture of the devil, is going to be wiped out and forgotten. And as I said before, any father is going to be like a raging bear when someone comes after their child. So you better watch out if that's what you do to the Jew. Kind of going back to what we saw there in Nazi Germany, I think that that guy realized that when he said Purim, 1946. I think he knew that those who bless Abraham will be blessed, those who curse them will be cursed. And if you look throughout history, that is exactly what we have seen. It always comes back on their own head. Those that go after the Jew has for all of history. There is no logical, no military reason that the state of Israel should exist today. None outside of the divine hand of God's protection. Not because Israel's been faithful. They've been unfaithful. That's what I was just going to say. They, it's like a one-sided relationship, but God is just honoring His promises, right? That when, yep. Because it's not required love. I mean, they don't... Well, and Romans even talks about that. I'm, I'm struggling to get where I need to get it going, but it's not because of their faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness to His promises has nothing to do, just like us, we don't deserve his mercy. None of us have earned that. But God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. It is, absolutely. Yep. But I love this verse 25. 
You hear all of these things that the enemy was going to come after you. I mean, it is like impossible. You're about to be annihilated. Wiped off of the earth. But when Esther came before the king. Guys, I'm with Daniel Joseph. I think that we as the Christian church today are right on the edge of seeing things that we have never seen in our lifetime. That there is going to be persecution. That there is going to be a time where you need to consider this day whom you will follow and consider whether you have enough to build the house before you begin building the house. All of these things the scripture says that we have to consider the cost because I think there's going to be a cost to follow Jesus. And when that happens, remember this but. When Esther, when the church, when the godly, when the faithful went to the king. This is what we talked about way back when she did. He's going to extend that scepter. He has extended the golden scepter to us already through his son Yeshua. That's what he has done. And this is the power of us going and seeking God. Not being worried about your 401k or, you know, storing up your food and your guns and your weapons and whatnot. Fine, go ahead, do that. I don't care. But that's not where your hope is at. Your hope is in going before the king. That is the answer right there. Don't worry if Trump gets in or Trump doesn't get in or a new guy comes in or if Biden is there or, or Kami is in. It makes no difference. But when Esther came before the king, that makes a difference. Don't forget that. Verse 26, so they called these days Purim. Im is just that plural of pur, so it's lots. After the name Pur, therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. Is this just a Jewish feast? No. No. And all who would join them. For those of you who were here when we, maybe three weeks ago, we talked about dual covenant theology. If you didn't hear that, go back and listen to it. You will see that many others became Jews. Just like in the Exodus, we see all who joined them were considered to be native-born Israelites. Let me tell you, you are a native-born Israelite if you are a follower of Yeshua today. You have been grafted into a Jewish covenant. The Jews have never been grafted into a Gentile covenant. And you are those that would join them. And that is why last year we celebrated Purim here. And we're going to do it again this year. And we're going to celebrate God's deliverance. We're going to celebrate 
the prophetic picture of our father fighting for us, his children, who have been unfaithful and unruly and stubborn and disobedient and obstinate but forgiven and righteous because of his son Jesus. So again, I see a prophetic picture of the Gentiles here joining the Jews and that we should celebrate with them because we are now part of them. So don't let your upbringing or your culture or your church doctrines sell you short of these blessings because it's biblical regardless of what man-made traditions might tell you. It's biblical. And that's why I do it. That's why we do these festivals, because they mean something. Verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept through every generation, every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews. Now notice here it just says the Jews. Why? Well, because if you join them, you are them. So now you're included in this. And that the memory of them should not perish among their, their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to, one, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth. It's interesting that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Prince of Peace. And these are the words of Mordecai. Kind of what we've talked about before, you see the difference between Haman and Mordecai in their rule. The devil, what does he seek? To destroy, to kill. That's it. What does Mordecai desire? Peace and truth. He desires that none should perish. You will if you go against him, just like Mordecai, it wasn't, he wasn't soft. I mean, he, he said, yeah, go kill him. This is the day of wrath for you because you are against us. But if you are for us, you are now us, and I want to offer you peace and truth. And that is what Jesus offers all of us. There is nobody that Jesus has not offered that peace and truth to. So this whole idea of God being this hateful God and, you know, uh, homophobic, all of these things, no. He is a God of peace and truth, and he offers to every homosexual, every prostitute, every druggie, every lost soul, he is offering peace and truth and hope and joy and feasting and celebrating. That's up to you, though. Your choice. You can become one of us, or you can be against him. Kind of was just curious about Esther, the daughter of Abigail. I don't think that we saw that before. And the name is now mentioned. And I thought, what does Abigail mean? And it's simply Abba, Ab, Father and strength. So it's basically father of strength. Well, Esther's dad is father of strength. Our father, who art in heaven, is the father of strength. He is our strength. We have none on our own, but he is our strength. We can do all things through him 
who strengthens us. So another picture to me, I think that, yes, we are Esther. We are that church. Notice that Mordecai, the Jew, again, it keeps calling him the Jew. Seems almost, you know, unnecessary to say this. But as we talked about way back at the beginning, just like Jesus, king of the Jews. Mordecai is a picture of Yeshua. And he's the one that sent these letters out. His word goes out to all the nations, to the whole world. And he has full authority. And we're going to be addressing that soon, so I won't talk about it too much here right now. But verse 31 says, To confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting, so the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. The fasting and lamenting, don't forget that. Going back to Daniel Joseph's message today, all these times that Israel came into trouble, we see over and over what they do. One of the examples was in Isaiah. Jeremiah is, maybe it was Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is basically um, the Babylonians come. He's been in prison. And the king says, you can go wherever you want. And he stays there. And the king of Babylon puts a king over Jerusalem. Well, it's not long somebody comes and assassinates them and kills the Babylonian soldiers that were there. So they know the Babylonians are coming back and we're in trouble. And the people come to him and say, talk to God, tell us what we should do. Whatever he says, we will do. So he does. And he says, God said... Remain here, obey them, it will go well with you. And they say, nope, you're lying. We're not going to listen to you, we're not going to listen to that word, it's not from God, so we're going to Egypt and we're taking you with us. And so they drag him off there. Earlier we see these people saying, you know, and they say it at this time as well, nope, you're lying. You see, when we were serving the queen of the heavens... Everything was good for us. We had food on our plates. We were able to have feasting. But ever since we've started worshiping God, we've had nothing but trouble and distress. Another example of that, I believe it's in Malachi, when we see that same thing. He's saying, you know, when we served these other gods, we were blessed. These other nations, look at all what they have. But ever since we've been serving God, we've had nothing but trouble. He showed like three examples of that. Is that going to be you? If what I think could be coming upon America here soon, and all of a sudden you're going to lose your house, your car, your ability to go shopping because you haven't been vaccinated, are you going to say, well, you know, I've been serving God, and so since I've been serving God, God, you and I, you're going to bless me and give me everything I want, right? Is that your expectation? And if that expectation isn't met, are you going to say, 
Never mind, God. I'm going to Egypt. Choose to stay whom you will follow, and that means you might have to go through some trials and tribulations. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus even said, in this world you will have trouble. That's quite the opposite of the prosperity gospel today, that we deserve God's blessings because we love him. Example after example in scripture we see, no, that's not what he's saying. Your reward is not here. It's there in heaven. So don't forget the fasting and lamenting. You see, we're not just called to be feasting and joyful and, oh, let's go have some fun until the Lord comes back and pretend like everything's okay. It's like that proverb that I said here a month or so ago, that a wise man sees trouble and takes refuge, but the fool keeps on going and suffers for it. I was telling Noah about that again today, and I see a lot of fools right now. Right now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Look at me. That's a good one. Notice I didn't answer. I didn't notice. There are a lot of people who are just living life right now as if it's going to be okay. They, they know. They know. I know. Yeah, think we're in trouble. Things are, but in the meantime, what am I going to do about it? Nothing. I'm not going to pray harder. I'm not going to fast more. I'm not going to lament more. I'm just going to continue to plan my life and hope it all works out. Yeah, yeah. Guys, don't forget the fasting and lamenting because I'm telling you trouble's coming and we have to be prepared. And I'm not talking about the food and the guns. Your spirit needs to be ready. Your spirit needs to be willing to die physically for him. You have to be willing to be hungry, willing to give up whatever we own realizing, as in Hebrews, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew that they themselves had better and lasting possessions. Do you have that attitude? If you do, great, go enjoy, keep doing what you're doing. If you don't have that attitude yet, that you're willing to give up everything, may I suggest you might want to start fasting and lamenting a little more to prepare your hearts. Because if your expectation is like the Israelites, we're going to waltz right into the promised land without any trouble, I think you're going to be shocked, discouraged, and maybe even then compromise because you weren't ready. What's that? Like they were. Like they were, yep. Prepare your hearts and minds for what's coming. It doesn't mean that there won't be deliverance, but it doesn't mean that you're going to get that deliverance on your yacht. Because this is not where the prize is at. Yeshua is the prize. But anyway, going back to this, notice that they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning these matters. It's easy to remember the deliverance, but to forget what it takes to get to that deliverance. 
And guys, it is not going to be easy if we are clinging to this world so tightly when deliverance comes. And we need to think about that. That gets us into chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. So at the close, all the power and glory goes back to the king. His tribute, everybody gives him. Just like when the Lord comes back, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And we see as well that King Ahasuerus here is going to bring by his side Mordecai. Um, just as we see God the Father and God the Son, and I understand the Trinity, I believe they are one, but yet we see that difference, you know, that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Uh, all these different ideas I think is the picture that is seen, but yet they're pictured as one. Whatever Mordecai says, it's, it is the authority of the Father. They are in a picture of one. The other thing, the islands of the sea. Um, that's another thing that I looked at that was interesting to me. Isaiah and Esther are the only two times that I could find this phrase found. Here it is in Esther. I thought this was interesting. He imposed tribute on everything and the islands of the sea. Now, I think there's a realistic physical aspect to this. You know, just saying, yeah, everything, all of them. Nobody was safe or hidden from him. But look what Isaiah 11, 11 says. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria Egypt, from Pathros, Cush, from Elam, Shinar, from Hamath, and the islands of the sea. Yeah, it's the same phrase, but I could only find it here and in Esther. You can find the word island in other places, but the way it was used, those were the only two that I found. So, just kind of interesting. Verse 2, now all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Okay. The king advanced Mordecai to be equal almost. That's the same thing we're going to see with Jesus here in a second. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus, and was great among the Jews, and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people, and speaking peace to all his countrymen. So, another picture, we've talked about this before, but Joseph, remember, Joseph is made second in command. Joseph is a Christ figure, the same thing that's being seen here. So, Joseph, Esther, same, same picture. Um, let me just show you some verses showing this authority that Yeshua has. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 3.35 or John 16.15 All things that the Father has are mine, Jesus says. Romans 8.34 Who is He who condemns? 
It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He's at the right hand of God. What's his job? To seek peace for all his countrymen, for all his brethren, to intercede for them. That is exactly what Mordecai does. Matthew 28:18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The whole world. So ultimately, guys, in closing out, this book gives hope. And it hopes that, that we can cling to. Because when Yeshua comes back, he is that lion of Judah that we talked about. And a lion is coming to devour the enemy. Not us. He's the lion of Judah. So he's going to bring back peace for us, but wrath for those who follow Haman. Rest for us, salvation for us, and a kingdom for us. But to wipe away all evil for those who do not follow him. So let me just close by giving you a quick review in three slides of what we've seen through the book of Esther here. First of all, we see King Ahasuerus is a picture of God and he throws a great feast to uplift and show off his bride, Vashti. Look, that's what God desires to do to us. But Vashti, the disobedient church, rejected the call. Esther, the obedient church, came. There were seven men placed over Esther, seven eunuchs, just like there were seven angels of the church of God. Matthew 22, the whole parable of the wedding banquet is exactly what we see in Esther. He invites a wedding, a great wedding, go invite everybody you know. That's what the king does. But to get in, you have to have wedding clothes on. You have to please the king and so on. Um, we are going to be judged by the law. That's how Vashti was judged. By the laws of the Medes and Persians. What, what should we do? What does the law say? Well, that's the law that judges the disobedient. Vashti's behavior caused her to be removed from the kingdom, just like the ungodly are, and her position was given to someone else. The word, or the edict, was to instill fear in the people, and it went out to the world. And that is what God's word is to do. It is to instill fear in you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom. In chapter 2 we saw Esther presented as a pure virgin from the street corners like we saw in Matthew chapter 22. Um, we saw Esther was pleasing the king just as we are to please the king as we humble ourselves and obey his instructions. Not for salvation but a desire to please the king. We see as well in Esther that we as she was, are set apart from the others because we are his special treasure, his special possession, his special people. We are to prepare ourselves, just as she had a time before she met her king, to be prepared. We are to prepare ourselves, and the Bible says, I believe in Corinthians, how we are to be presented as pure virgins, prepared for the king. We also can only come to the king and into his presence if he summons us. No one comes to the Father 
unless you go through Jesus. And no one gets to go to Jesus unless the Father draws him. In chapter 3, we saw the king gave Esther's banquet because he delighted in her, just as he is going to give us a banquet because he delights in us. We saw Agag, a picture of the devil in Haman, goes after his bride. See that in Revelation. The devil wants to be like the king. Haman wanted to be just like Ahasuerus. He wanted to ride the, the horse, a horse that the king had ridden on. Everything. He wanted not the money, but he wanted to be the king. Just like the devil does. Well, we also see that the devil was given a seat of honor. Haman was right next to I mean, he was elevated in the kingdom. So was Satan, chief of the cherub. We see that it's not enough to be the devil. He wanted worship, and he wanted to go after the bride. And so the devil goes after the bride, and he is enraged at Mordecai and all the Jews. Just as we see in the book of Revelation, the exact same words how the king, or Satan rather, is enraged and goes after all those who keep the commands of God. In chapter, uh, well, just before, I guess, uh, Haman is given permission to attack the Jews. Just like in Revelation, it says that the devil is given authority to attack. But with the whole and sole purpose of to come to his own demise so that it will be turned back on his own head. Chapters 4 and 5, we saw that the Jews were bewildered when the decree went out even though they had done nothing wrong. Just like today we see and should not be bewildered when the world hates us. Even though we love people, we give money when there are disasters, we're still the bad guy. Mordecai won't accept clothes. Just as Jesus would not accept the king, he became sin for us. He mourned, he, he became a man and suffered for us, for our good. Um, when, enter, uh, when Esther entered the, the throne room of the king, she was bringing petitions there, and she was welcomed because he extended the gold scepter. And as I said, that is Jesus for us. We could not enter our king's presence without Jesus, without dying. That's a whole picture in the Old Testament. You went into the Ark of the Covenant, you touched that, you're dead. Unless now Jesus, our gold scepter is extended to us. Then we see in chapter 6, the king can't sleep just as God. The Bible even gave, gave you some books on that. He never sleeps, he's always watching over us. Mordecai pleases the king just as God the Father is pleased by Jesus. This is my son in whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The honor that Haman, the devil, wants goes to Mordecai. The honor that the devil wants goes to Jesus. Haman is put to shame. His pomp is brought down. Just as we read in Ezekiel with the devil and in Isaiah, it says your pomp has been brought down to the grave. Maggots will surround you. Your worms are covering you. All of that. Chapter 7 and 8, Esther's request, if you ask anything in my name, 
Right? That's what Jesus said. The king says, whatever you want, it will be given to you. Jesus says, whatever you have, if you ask in my name, it will be given to you. It does, but again, when we are, it's kind of that whole, that whole thing about the desires of our heart will line up with his, not, I want a new sports car. Sorry, Jordan, I'm sure that you would love that. But yeah, yeah. Um, Esther, as a picture of the church, confesses Mordecai before the king, just as we will confess Jesus, or Jesus will confess us too before his father, but we, we do as well. Um, the devil, the authority is given to Mordecai. The, the authority that the devil or Haman wanted is given to him. We kind of covered that one. We see Haman is killed, but the threat of the edict is still there unless there's another edict that overcomes it. Even with the devil gone today, if the devil were thrown into hell today, you'd still go to hell. Because there is a, an edict that is against you already, the law of God that you have broken. And so there had to be another law that would take that away, that would overcome the punishment. And so that's what we see there. Um... The Jews celebrate, they're given light, offered peace, as we talked about tonight. We saw that Gentiles became Jews a few weeks ago, and we got us another picture of it tonight. I guess there was four slides here. Chapter 9 and 10, the tables were turned, the enemies perish, but the Jew and the Gentiles are saved, those that basically you know, follow Jesus, uh, just like we're going to see when the devil goes against Israel or the, the Holy Land, Jerusalem. He thinks that he's going to attack them, but what happens? The Lord goes out and attacks them, and the tables will be turned. Um, the sons of Haman, all those who follow him, basically, will perish. Rest is given to those who follow Mordecai. There's a special wedding banquet, as we talked about, and that feast is to be celebrated for how long? Forever, it said. Forever. We will celebrate our feast forever. And Mordecai, second in power, but yet equal, his whole goal is to seek the good of his people. And that is what Jesus is for us. The only reason Jesus came was to seek the good of God's people. For you. So, that is the book of Esther.